This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Research is a path to make things better. Reach out to people and ask them and ask them to be brutally honest. And everybody will say the most important part is to graduate. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk with a physical therapist who is redefining her career with an online PhD program. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 200. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Party time, Dan. <laughs> Josh, we have to address the elephant in the room. Okay, I'm looking around. There is, in fact, no party happening around me at this moment. There is no party. And we just spent 15 minutes debating whether to actually call this episode 200 or whether to call it 199 and a half. Because you and I are about to get together in two or three weeks, middle of November. We're going to attend uh, the Society for Neuroscience Conference. We're going to hang out. And we thought, why are we going to record our celebratory podcast when we are hundreds of miles from each other and can't share a bottle of champagne? So, sorry for the tease last time when we you know, posted our 100th episode, but we are saving the celebration for episode 201 or so when we can actually get together. That's right. It will be a party for that momentous occasion, but the show must go on, Dan. Party or no party. It must. Uh, I did want, since you mentioned it, Dan, I did want to plug again what you just said that we are, in fact, going to be attending the Society for Neuroscience 2023 conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, the conference goes November 11th through 15th, but we will be there at the Promega booth on Sunday, November 12th and Monday, November 13th from noon to 3 p.m. So come by the Promega booth on the Sunday and Monday of the conference uh, around lunchtime, early afternoon, and we would love to say hello to you. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm already doing all the things. You know, we've talked about attending conferences on several episodes in the past, and this is the first time, Josh, that I'm actually heeding our advice. I'm starting to reach out to people that I would like to see while I'm at the conference. So people that we've had on the show before, people that I'd like to talk to for the show, I'm trying to get them on the schedule so that uh, I actually use that time wisely for once. Well, I'm feeling guilty because I put no effort into attending the conference yet. So maybe we could do a compare and contrast about your conference experience, having prepared in advance and myself who procrastinated and just showed up. Mine's going to be wild. <laughs> hey, Dan, I wanted to also say, we don't have a beer. Uh, we are really unprepared. We're not uh, sharing a beer uh, on the show today. Uh, but I did want to say it is October uh, as we record this. And as I like to do this time of year, I've been sampling a lot of Oktoberfests, Dan. I've been to a couple new breweries in my area recently. And I have just really been in an Oktoberfest mood lately. Uh, I was in the mountains this weekend, sipping a nice uh, Oktoberfest. You haven't gotten to the pumpkin ale phase of their fall yet? You know, I think I'm going to skip the pumpkin ale right over this year. <laughs> That's a good choice. So uh, are there recommendations you'd like to give for Oktoberfests that people can get a hold of? You know, this is what I think about Oktoberfests, Dan. Maybe this is what I like them or why I like them. I am not a brewer and I don't, don't pretend to know the nuances. But I feel like I have yet to have a bad Oktoberfest. I feel like it's a pretty consistent... Whoa. Uh, a pretty consistent beer type. Uh, so, you know, I, I had a, I have a Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest in my fridge right now, but I had a couple Oktoberfests at two different breweries over the last couple weeks. All delicious. So I'm going to just go out on a limb and say you can't go wrong with an Oktoberfest wherever you can find it. I'm going to have to dig through the archive because I'm pretty sure, well, no, I'm, I'm thinking probably of the pumpkin beers that you and I have tried over the years on the show. Uh, we've definitely had some bad ones of those, but maybe not a bad Oktoberfest. I will try and go back and find out. Okay. It's a bold statement. Well, let us know. And if you have indeed had a bad Oktoberfest uh, or one you particularly like, uh, let us know. We'd love to seek it out and try it. Still time to find it. All right, Josh. Well, we do want to say thank you. You mentioned we're going to be in the Promega booth. We also want to uh, mention some resources that Promega has to offer for PhD students. 
If you are exploring a new career path or taking your next step, maybe you're just thinking about a career change. If you want to apply for an internship or nail your job interview or learn about next steps, Promega's professional skills and development page has all the information you need. Just go to promega.com slash hello career. Kind of timely for today's topic. It sure is, Dan. Why don't we jump right in and hear your interview with Carla Winty. All right, Dan, tell us how this interview came about. Well, this is the best kind of interview, Josh. This is, uh, I got an email, we got an email from a listener, and basically she said, look, I'm in a PhD program, and you are not talking about the experience that I'm having. It was it was different enough from some of the things that we normally discuss on the show, and she wanted to have her story shared with some people, and, and so I called her and got it in her own voice. So Carla Wente is a physical therapist. She'll give you a little bit of her background, but she is now enrolled in an online PhD program where she is trying to expand her impact uh, by getting this PhD on top of these clinical degrees she's already using. Take a listen. Today, I am joined by Carla Wente. Welcome to Hello PhD, Carla. Thank you for having me. And we are going to talk about a subject I don't think we've covered on the podcast before. But before we get to that, can you just give everybody a sense of your background, some of your training, and maybe a little bit of your work history? Yeah, I am a doctor of physical therapy. So I graduated with my doctor of physical therapy from Washington University in St. Louis in 2013. So I have been a practicing physical therapist for 10 years, almost, or over 10 years, And I went on during my clinical doctorate to specialize in pelvic floor physical therapy. So I have been treating solely in private practice settings. And I see men, women, and children who have pelvic floor issues. And so what I tell my patients is, I see anybody who has issues with pooping, peeing, or sex. It's quite a range, quite a range. And I should add pain in there. So I see a lot of people who have abdominal pain, pelvic pain, things like that. So it's definitely like a niche area already for my clinical interests. And it's not well researched. There's not a lot of awareness about what I do clinically. And that then kind of drove me to the research side, which I think we'll talk about. But currently, I am in a PhD program at Rush University in Chicago. And so I am hopefully getting my PhD in health sciences in the next few years or so. I, I love the uncertainty that that means you're really in it. Uh, it means it's a real, a real PhD if you have no idea what it will take or when it will end. I want to step back one second because you said doctorate in physical therapy. I think you actually listed two different doctorates. So I don't know enough about training for physical therapists, apparently. Uh, Tell me the differences between that and a PhD. Yeah. So let's go back to my journey, maybe into my clinical degree. So we'll start with high school, back in time. So I was always interested in science. I was always interested in medicine. And, you know, for my entire upbringing, I was like, I'm probably going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a dentist. I'm going to be a whatever, like something healthcare, right? Like I was always playing with my Barbies as like Dr. Wendy. And in high school, I was that nerd that was like, chemistry is fascinating. Like, this is the only subject that I want to like read the book of. And so in college, I was a chemistry major and a math minor uh, because I'm a masochist. It sounds like you like school. (laughs) Yeah, I like school. I like learning. But again, in those programs, you know, chemistry, obviously, there's a huge lab component. And I enjoyed it. But I knew early on, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to be in the lab. I don't want to be a chemist, you know, but I really love the subject. And I love the abstract thinking of it. And thinking that I would become an MD. So that was always the plan is I'm going to be a physician. And so you know, later on in my college years, I started observing physicians and I learned a little more about the, the system of healthcare. And I started studying for the MCAT. 
And I just was like miserable. And I said, I don't, I don't want to do this. And that was the hardest thing to say, I will say. So anybody that has had to make a change, I think in their, in their thoughts about their career paths, I can empathize with that where you're like, I don't want to do this, but that means that I have to like give up on all the ideas of what I thought that was and they start me. they start early right you started as a, maybe a teenager or even younger thinking this is going to be my life and giving up on that is extremely difficult yes totally and what we know now again is there's you know people that are graduating high school they might go into careers that haven't even been created yet so you know for me i was thinking oh i'll be a doctor because that's all i know to do like oh there's physician and everything else right for whatever reason my parents are not physicians i don't know where i got this idea but i did and it stuck in my head so i can remember pretty clearly in my senior year of college which is pretty late that i was just like a wreck i was like well i don't want to be a physician i don't think this is for me i don't want to prescribe drugs i don't want to study for the mcat this is awful so what am i going to do so i called my sister crying she's my older sister and she said carla she's a pt she's a physical therapist and she said just look into it you might like it just see what you think so within my last year of college i quickly got together my volunteer hours for physical therapy school, had to take the GRE, had to take different prerequisites. And so it radically changed my senior year of college and that like first semester of my senior year. And then like, I mean, to my shock and joy, I got into the number one school for physical therapy in the country. And I said, well, I think this is the sign I'm going to go. So it's a good reason. So it's a clinical doctorate. It's a, I know, right? It's a clinical doctorate. It's a three-year doctoral degree. So similar to, you know, the PhD is a research degree. The MD is a clinical degree so that you could be a practicing physician. The DPT or doctor of physical therapy is a clinical degree so that you can practice physical therapy. I see. So, yes. So that's the route that I went. And then I stayed on again because I love school. I stayed on for a year as a resident at WashU to study women's health and pelvic health, which was an amazing opportunity. So you have been practicing for 10 years now, you said, a little over 10 yeah. years. And yes. I'm so curious what makes you say to yourself, I want to go back to school for another degree. So I, I'm assuming this is going to get you some new career opportunity or some new track of learning or interest. And I'm, I'm struggling to figure out somebody with a DPT. What do you do with a PhD? Oh, these are great questions. So I was thinking about this in anticipation for this interview. And I was like, why do I do what I do? And I said, well, first of all, I'm fueled by a lot of coffee and like a lot of rage against the system. Perfect. It's a so good that start. Be the title of this episode. <laughs> it's a good, really good start. <laughs> yes. So I think, you know, why does anybody do anything? I think there has to be intrinsic and extrinsic reasons. So the intrinsic reasons are incredibly clear to me that healthcare has problems. Healthcare needs to change. Physical therapy needs to change, in my opinion. So I think, you know, more people need to know what we do. More people need to know what pelvic floor physical therapists do. And having the clinical doctorate is great to be able to treat one patient at a time. But I really started to think about, you know, how can I make a difference for more people at once? And so this is where research comes in, is when you start to do health science studies, then you're looking at an N of, you know, hopefully more than one. So that is one thing. The other intrinsic reason is also just that I do like school. I wanted to learn more. I actually have found, to the dismay of my clinical students who I teach in the, in the clinic, that being in research actually really helps your clinical thinking. It makes you more systematic. It makes you much more like strategic, efficient, not to mention you just are like in the literature much more. And so you can 
speak to those things to your patients and say, we really don't know this, but here's the theory or this is what we do know. It, it really helps. And why I say the dismay of my clinical students is because they're like, oh my gosh, like it's so hard to train under somebody who's getting their second doctoral degree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to pause you there because you gave such a beautiful description of what science should be. And I think sometimes we forget that the purpose of science, the purpose of research is to increase the end, to improve society, to impact more people. And we get so focused on our particular uh, protein or subject or whatever, we forget that it really is, at the end of the day, about improving human knowledge and helping people. I just I just love the way you put that. And I am re-inspired. <laughs> and I also, I just, I just love the notion that research training can help somebody in a clinical setting too, right? It is not just about, I apply the Band-Aid. It is about, how am, I, how am I interacting with these patients? Am I helping the most people in a way that is repeatable? Can I share those findings with other people in my field and improve science generally? I just think it's wonderful. Oh, I'm so happy. We talked about like intrinsic factors, extrinsic factors, right? So you're like, I hope you get paid more. And man, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? We'll see on that. The jury's out. I will say, so another big motivating factor for me is, you know, I love to teach. And so my my goal ultimately is that I would love to be in a doctor physical therapy program or some other healthcare program or some type of academic setting teaching. And it is incredibly hard to do that without a terminal doctorate and the clinical doctorate does not count for that. And so a lot of the accreditation standards of these programs means that they, they have rules that say like 50% of your faculty has to have a PhD or an educational doctorate or a doctor of science. And for whatever reason, that's how it is. Probably, I would guess, because we have a problem of, of not enough research in physical therapy. And so they know that they need to get people on faculty to produce research, right, for what we do. So, so to be able to teach, it's much easier to get a position if you have a PhD. I think what you're talking about is taking it and leveraging it for something, which is expanding your reach, learning what you're learning in the clinic, and taking it out to students and changing the system, the next generation of PTs. That is the exact reason to get a PhD. The thing I wanted to step back and ask you was, you you painted that beautiful picture of the reasons to go back for a PhD, knowing how it was going to help your career, knowing how it could help you impact the community. There are lots of PhD programs, I assume, and different styles. And I'm wondering what you considered along the, that path and how you made your decision to do this online program, which we're going to talk about. Yes. Okay. So that's a great question. So I, I had a few options for a practicing physical therapist who had a chemistry degree in their undergrad. There's like, there's a finite number of options, I would say, for what makes sense for a PhD program. So I could try to go back to a PhD in more basic science, lab science. That was off the table. I was so far from that and didn't want to do it. So that was right off the table. Okay. Not even really a consideration. I was going to say me either. I didn't like my, my lab science PhD very much. Secondly, there are PhDs in physical therapy. So I mentioned I have a doctor of physical therapy, the clinical degree to practice physical therapy, but there are PhDs in physical therapy. And so that's more doing research specifically into physical therapy practice. And so that was off the table for me because I said, you know, while I'm a PT and I love PT, I think the problem that I have with PT is that people don't know what we do and we need a spokesperson for the wider healthcare community, but just the wider community in general. So to me, it didn't make sense to get a PhD in physical therapy for that reason, among others. And so I was really looking into public health and health sciences when I really narrowed it down and I applied to both. 
and I went where I got in. <laughs> and that's, I think, also the reality of it. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because you were looking for something not to put you deeper into the world of physical therapy, but to supplement your experience and your knowledge. It would still give you the degree. You could still teach at a university, but it doesn't necessarily put you on that narrow path that says, I can only talk about this one thing. And so I think that's an interesting consideration for people thinking about going back for a PhD. Maybe you have your chemistry, master's degree or whatever, and you're working in industry. Do you consider continue to push on chemistry or do you try to supplement that with something else that's maybe related to a field you want to be in? I think that's a great consideration. Did you look at programs that were in residence and you're doing an online program we're going to talk about, but did you think about, Hey, I'm going to quit my job and do something else for five years? Oh, that's a good question. I thought about it briefly. You know, there was kind of the like, how deep can I go into this? And I'm 35 years old and I love my job. I absolutely love what I do. And that's also the question I get actually from patients. They usually say, please don't leave. We like you. As I was going to ask whether you had patients over the long term that were depending on you. Yes. So my patients are like, that's great. Go do that. Spread the word, but also please don't leave. And so I need to pick something that's going to make sense for me to be able to work so that I can pay for this. And again, there's there's these practical considerations, which I think is really important to say, because ultimately, you're paying with money and or time, regardless. You are also, if you're going back to school, you are losing out on money that you could have made while you were in school and losing out on potential promotions, and, you know, career advancement. So I think it's really important that you know that and you know what you're signing up for and you do due diligence in terms of what makes sense in terms of why I'm doing this for career prospects but also how am I going to do it financially <laughs> I do want to also say so again my the doctor of physical therapy clinical degrees are not fully funded either so when I came out of PT school and because I went to a very good school that cost quite a bit of money, I had, yes, I think one hundred thirty-five dollars or $140,000 in student loans. I was very lucky to not have undergraduate loans. I lived cheaply for a very long time. I don't own a home still. So I just, you know, again, I want to be really transparent to yep. people that like... Yeah, I'm not like rolling in dough over here, but that's my choice too. The the point is that you you make it work with the constraints that you have. And let's all yes. hope that we can work out funding for physical therapists or or the education of physical therapists, either one would be fine, such that you're not saddled with debt and can have a livelihood that allows you to experience the best that America has to offer. But until that time, <laughs> there are constraints and, and you're working yes. within them. And so you're making these decisions to go back to school and you've got to make the decision that works for your lifestyle. And it, and it seems like if you were to do an in-residence program where you just quit everything, it'd be a non-starter. And, and that's probably true for most people. Yes. So the format of my program, the Rush PhD in Health Sciences program it is all of the coursework is online and the program is geared towards people who are practicing healthcare professionals. There's tons and tons of discussion boards on Blackboard or Canvas or whatever we use now. And, and there's a lot of like collaborative kind of projects that we have to do. So it is online. You're a little bit alone. That's a downside of an online program. We're across the country. So I'm here in Chicago and I am an employee at Rush as well, but it, it can be like you're on an island. And so I think that if you are in this kind of program, you have to be very motivated to reach out to others. And luckily I'm an extrovert. So I can say, Hey, Megan from class, I don't know what's going on. Can you help me out? And then we like get on a phone call and it's good to get rid of your pride and just like try to make it work and reach out to others. You mentioned you've got you, two years of classes. Is that correct? Yes. And that's all that you're expected to do during that first two years? 
So no, we're not in a lab, right? So I think that's that's the main difference. But are now, you identifying a research advisor? Okay. So when we come into this program, we have to have a research advisor from the get-go. And I think that has a couple benefits. One is that you just know right away, like who you're working with and people come to that different ways. So some of the people in my program, they work, you know, at an institution and they've been doing clinical research, for example, but now they just kind of need a PhD, you know, they need to take it to the next level. So they already have a mentor and somebody that maybe is a PI on their studies, who's going to be their research advisor. And they pursue this program. I did not have that. So I knew that I needed somebody and I knew that I needed somebody that would support my interest areas. And so I had to really lean on past connections, which is a good piece of advice I have for everybody is like, if you meet somebody, you know, it's always networking, whether it's immediate or not. So keep people in mind And you never know like where your paths are going to cross in the future. So my clinical rotation 10 years ago through my PT program was at Rush. And so I did three months of a rotation in outpatient PT and pelvic health. And during my time there, I connected with a physician, Dr. Sheila Dugan, who is the department chair now of physical medicine and rehabilitation. So she's a rehab physician and I'm a PT. So during my time, during my clinical, I observed her and met her and she's just like, first of all, a fantastic person, an advocate for students. I mean, like I cannot speak more highly of my research advisor. A mentor as opposed to just an advisor. Yes, she is my mentor and she advocates for me and it's beautiful and she really has a heart for diversity inclusion and women in leadership but you had to ask her to be able to enter the program you had to have identified a person and did the person have to be at rush or could it be somebody anywhere in the world yeah so it didn't have to be at rush it could have been anywhere i thought about her because i had met her during this previous clinical rotation and i you know, was like grappling with how am I going to do this? How am I going to make this work? And so I reached out to a few people, but Dr. Dugan was one of them. And I said, Hey, this is really what I want to do. You have my like content area of expertise. I know you have not been a PhD student advisor before, but interesting. That's a good question to ask. Yes, but I think we can do it because I trust you. And I also am older and I am, you know, very determined. And I think I can do a lot of this, but I will need somebody that can connect me with other researchers. And she's a great like facilitator connector. So she agreed and I jumped up and down. (laughs) You mentioned that you are preparing your proposal. So you, you have a committee, you've selected a committee. How did that work? I have a committee. So To back up just a little bit, for my first two years, knowing that I didn't have a lot of research experience, I came in, I wanted to be fully transparent and say, I know I don't have a lot of research experience. I'm willing to learn more during my coursework years. And Dr. Dugan, again, being the advocate that she was, said, if I can find you some funding or hire you so that we can offset some of the cost of your program... I'm going to try to do that, right? I mean, just amazing woman. My gosh, I'm going to send this to her and be like, I mean every word. <laughs> I'm going to cut all this out. Don't worry. <laughs> so she hired me as basically a research assistant in the PM&R department. So physical medicine and rehab department. So in those roles, I was able to help build research capacity in the department. So what that means is I provide education to PM&R residents about research I help attendings with their research projects. And through that, I've had to learn a lot of the process of research at Rush. So things like the IRB, which, you know, through an IRB, you have to know with healthcare research, there's extra considerations like HIPAA and privacy issues. 
So then you have to think about like, what software am I using? What happens if there's a data breach? Dot, 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 dot. Versus like a Petri dish that's not a person's specimen probably doesn't matter as much, I would guess. It sure does not. It's, it seems like it would take forever to get an IRB approval for humans. Totally. And I think if I will talk about my project or my intended project in a minute, but if I were doing your classic clinical trial or randomized control trial or something like that, it'd be even harder. And so we'll talk about if you're going into a program like mine or you're using healthcare data for a PhD, there may be some ways you want to go to make sure that you actually graduate and do it on time. So, so yeah, so then through that process, I also met a lot of people and I was able to say, what do I need for my committee? And from my perspective, I said, you know, I have a lot of content area expertise, right? And my advisor does as well. So I need more of the methodology, the research experience. I I purposefully chose people, first of all, who were willing to be on my committee. And then secondly, who could give me insight specifically to the methodology that I want to use. I wanted to ask about your cohort. So you mentioned that you are willing to call up other students in your program. Do you have much contact with the people? Is there a sense of cohesion in your year? Are you able to learn from people who went through the program that maybe a year or two ahead of you? What is that like for an online? I think it could depend on who you are. So from my experience, I need like touch points and I need people, right? Again, I'm a PT, I'm an extrovert, I need people. And so, and when I was making the decision about the program, I asked the director of the program to give me contacts of people who were further into it or who have recently graduated. And so I met somebody who had recently graduated and we just like talked on the phone or whatever. And then I also met somebody who's a PT who was in basically their fourth year at that time. Now she's graduated and she is a PT PhD and I'm very proud of her. And we became friends and she really helped me a lot through the program, right? So the advice there is to reach out, make sure that you're getting that contact, especially if it's not built in. Definitely. And I would also say to go with that, don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid to hear no response. Don't be afraid to get a no. Don't be afraid to like, you may meet with somebody and never talk to them again. You may meet with somebody and they become a lifelong friend. (laughs) Like you just never know. And you really don't know unless you just ask. Um, So there's that. And then same thing within the program. So again, we all have like institutional email addresses. And so I think a couple of us were a little more outgoing and just said like, Hey, like, especially during our biostatistics class, which is very hard. (laughs) we all kind of banded together and we're like, we need to help each other out. So I think if you have that at all, just go for it because I can guarantee you there's somebody on the other end of that email that would love that. And just won't ask. Are are there any on-site events? Are there quarterly get-togethers where you get to meet anybody or it is fully online? You could be anywhere in the world and be in this program. You can be anywhere, at least as far as I know, in the country. I'm not sure about the world, but definitely anywhere in the country and be in this program. And so there are no on-site events. Occasionally we do live or uh, synchronous, I guess, Zoom meetings, but they are also not required because the program is primarily asynchronous. Which again is maybe wild, right? So it's very self-paced. I had a series of questions for you about what it's like to go back to school as a quote-unquote non-traditional student. That term we give to people who maybe have a, a career and then they decide to go back. But it really sounds like the nature of this program is such that you may not be facing the same challenges that you might face if you were going to sit in a classroom with a bunch of 22-year-olds, right? So some of those social aspects are removed, but I assume you're still dealing with the time commitments and the tuition commitments. We talked about that. How do you manage your day? You're still seeing patients and other things? Like, how does that work? Okay, this is a great question. So how do I manage my day? I don't know. Probably not as effectively as I could. (laughs) Step one, caffeine. Yes. So I... I'm a fan of blocking time. 
And so what I did pretty early on when I, at least when I found out that I got into um, my PhD program, I, first of all, I talked to my boss and clinic owner, like really early on, Hey, I'm applying to these programs that will change my clinic hours, dot, 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 like tons and tons of advanced warning. And like, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Great. I'll work more. But I would say it's better to just be honest and like transparent about those things. That's great. Then I specifically said like, okay, it's going to be best for me to have like clinic days and non-clinic days. So my schedule is such that I have Mondays and Thursdays as my long clinic days. And so I treat nine to six Monday through Thursday and those nights when I come home, I've decided unless I really, really have to like <laughs> haul ass on something, if you will, I don't do anything. I'm free. I, I can do whatever I want. Those nights are my nights and I'm going to watch anime. <laughs> okay. it, it's built in that you're going to have time to let your brain relax so that yes. you don't burn out. I mean, you mentioned burnout for PTs. This is a real thing. Add yes. on top of that, a PhD program, PhDs, burnout, that's a real thing. <laughs> you need to make space for your own mental health. Totally. I also have the benefit of like, this is my second round through graduate school. So I learned during my first round that I could study and study and study and study and study to try to get A's, first of all, and that the grades don't matter as much. So there's that. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's true. The... <laughs> The rallying chant was C's get degrees and it. it tracks because, well, I think that you should, you know, learn the information well to become a good practicing healthcare provider. There's so many more things about being a healthcare provider, you know, about like being a good person and caring about people that you don't learn in your books and you don't learn by studying cardiopalm. And so I think that, I still have that attitude where I'm like, the grade honestly doesn't matter. Now I need to learn stuff to use it, which is a huge difference from undergrad, right? Where it is about the grades and I need to get straight A's so that I can get into a program so that I can do this, blah, 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 blah. Now, not as much. I also learned very quickly how to be very efficient in my studies. But you've got the schedule book. So Monday and Thursday, you're in the clinic. Tuesday, Wednesday, yes, Monday, Friday, Thursday, Saturday, clinic. like, how, are we doing weekends? What does the rest of our week look like? Okay, so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday fluctuate a little bit, but I do more of my coursework. Like I used to do when I had coursework, I would say, okay, this morning, I'm going to work on this course. This afternoon, I'm going to work on this course. Wednesdays, for example, I would say that's when I'm going to work on my research tasks within the PM&R department. I have to schedule a lot of meetings with people. And so those things kind of come in and out. And now I, now that I'm not in coursework, I'm doing more, more meetings, more like self-study about, you know, basically the logistical design for my project. Like, how am I actually going to do this? Tell me, tell me briefly about the project because that is going to change your next two or so years. And I'm interested to know what type of research you're going to engage in and then how you're going to do that, theoretically, remotely, finding patient, whatever other thing you're about to tell me is. I, I, I have not figured out how this is going to work. Yeah, I love that you're like, so what do you do? Honestly, yeah, I love that. That's great. Very quickly, I'm just going to say what I thought about doing. Okay, so when I first started... Dr. Dugan is part of the research team at Rush of the study of women's health across the nation, which or SWAN, which is like a very large epidemiological study that investigates women's health. And it started in, I think, 1996. So like 25 years ago, and they investigate a bunch of different health factors and Tons of things, but including things like quality of life, sleep, but also vaginal health, menopause, urinary health, things that maybe I'm more interested in. So luckily, when I first started, I was able to become like a junior investigator on the SWAN study right at the beginning of my PhD program. 
So I've been like attending regular research meetings, learning more about epidemiology. I am working on a project using SWAN data, which is basically a secondary data analysis. So the data has already been collected and now we can run a study on it is what that means. I decided though, because my skill set's not necessarily in data analysis and I'm not a statistician, nor do I want to be. They're great. They are super smart and we love them and appreciate everything they do. I don't want to be them necessarily. You mentioned not loving biostatistics. So I kind of tracked that this was going to have to take a, a sharp turn. Yeah. And so I considered using SWAN data, doing things with epidemiology. And I said, you know, for a variety of reasons, and actually with some consultation from my program, they said, you know, you really don't like data analysis all that much. And I said, you're right. So I shifted my project or proposed project probably like a few months ago. So this is recent. Okay. And I decided, okay, let me take a more clinical tactic, but I don't necessarily want to get into the position. This is strategic. Okay. I will just tell you that. And I think with a PhD project, you have to be strategic. It's so true. So what I could have done is said, I want to do a clinical trial. I'm going to recruit subjects, blah, 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 test this intervention or whatever. Okay. The problem is recruiting subjects is very hard and takes a very long time to get the power that you need to make your study worth anything. And I just kind of didn't, I wanted to avoid that a little bit for my PhD project. Is it something I want to do in the future? Possibly, but I don't think that's smart right now if I want to graduate. Do that other project when you're not paying tuition for every year that it takes to get that project done. That's the advice. Precisely. And I and I talked to a bunch of professors and people with PhDs and I got this advice over and over. So this is not just like my brain coming up with this. It's listening to others. So I want to point that out for everyone else listening that like reach out to people and ask them and ask them to be brutally honest. And everybody will say the most important part is to graduate. Part of me hates that because I'm like, no, I want to learn. I want to, you know, I, there's this passion and blah, blah, blah. But Again, if I don't get the degree, none of it really matters, and that's unfortunate. But You'll it's have true. plenty of time for learning. No one's going to stop you from learning once you've got the degree. Exactly. So I decided, okay, well, I can do secondary data, certainly would not be using clinical subjects or have that problem of recruitment. But a large epidemiological study probably is beyond my capabilities of what I can do statistically as a student. So I decided to, and I was a little bit in a, <laughs> can I swear? You can do what you want. I may bleep you, but. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I was in an oh shit moment of like, what am I going to do? Right? Like I had this thought, I had this data set, I had this perfect thing. And then now I'm like kind of told I shouldn't do that. And I also feel like I shouldn't do that if I'm really honest. And so I need to like go back to the basics again. Right. And this is, again, where I think research is iterative, right? Where you're like, okay, I got to go back to square one, but now with everything I've learned from square 10 or whatever. And so I first had to just like cry and be very upset. <laughs> So this, this, is, this is senior year of college all over again when the, with the MCATs looming and saying like, all of these things I planned for, I'm not going to do those. Now, reset. Thank you for picking up on that because... And it worked from out. My yeah, from my perspective, it was like, oh my gosh, am I being dramatic? Am I, you know, whatever. And you can easily go into catastrophizing, I think. And I think it's really important that you, you kind of let yourself be sad and grieve for a little bit without it spiraling out of control. But I think where people go wrong is they either let it spiral out of control or they never feel it or never process it. And I think you need to do a little bit, but have some constraints on it. And again, this is where like me being older and having been to years of therapy and, it helps. you know, exactly. And Prozac, go Prozac, all these things I think are great, right? Where it's like, I'm in such a better position to be able to deal with this than I was in my senior year of college, which is an amazing reflection, I think. 
so I freaked out and then I kind of went into action mode, you know, and said, okay, well, what makes sense? What do I want to do? What do I care about? What can I read about for the next two years? I learned early on, I don't want to read about stuff I don't care about very much. And what I care about is women's health, pelvic health, sex, you know, things like that, like sexual medicine. Like I could read about that all day long. And I talk about it all day long in the clinic. And I don't think I'll be tired of it in a couple of years. So I was like, how can I come up with a study that's about sex? And I know. No, that's I know, great. Right? The danger is that a PhD will make you hate whatever subject you started out loving. So I'm, that's the caution here. But I think you're, you're on the right track. So what did you decide on? Totally. So I decided on a mixed method study. So again, what that means is I'm doing a quantitative part and a qualitative part. So I am going to do a retrospective chart review. And since I'm at Rush, I have access, hopefully through IRB approval eventually, to a lot of patient data, right? And everybody uses electronic software now for patient records. And so that's a beautiful amount of data that just needs to be organized and gathered, which is laborious. I make it sound very easy, but it's actually incredibly laborious. And so what I wanted to know about was um, how are providers actually asking about sexual function? That's what I came down to. So again, I would say, go back to what is your research question? Look in the literature, refine it. You know, think about what you're interested in, refine it again. And I think that question has to drive you. So I really came down to like, my hypothesis is providers aren't probably asking about sexual function enough. They're asking about activity. Like, are you sexually active? Is there a possibility that you're pregnant or have a disease of some sort? But I don't think they're asking, how's it going? (laughs) And I think we should. The thing I love about this is it is all going to be informed by your clinical experience. The last 10 years that you spent interacting with patients have given you a vision into the research that you could do that nobody else who didn't do that clinical experience would have. You're not going to come in as a first year graduate student and be like, hmm, I just, I have these questions about Uh, women's sexual health and whether they're married, but you've been asking all those questions for 10 years. And so now you're going to be able to broaden your scope, look at much more data than just the 10 or 50 or whatever number of patients you can see, and then turn that around into an impact for a a paper that other PTs can read, that other uh, clinicians can read, and turn that into something much bigger, just like you said you wanted to do at the beginning. Totally. I want to give you the chance to talk about any advice or pitfalls or things that somebody who is considering either the online PhD, which I think is what we kind of focused on today versus the coming back after years of uh, other experience, but either of those that you want to comment on, please share your wisdom. So in regards to choosing an online program for a PhD, I think you have to really make sure that you are going to be self-motivated, that you are comfortable reaching out to others. And I think that means advisors, mentors, you know, people in all realms, classmates. I think that I can't imagine going through this program and not reaching out to anybody. I think that would have been very lonely and probably not very effective in my learning And in the type of research that I'm going into, especially, I do think it's really, it's highly collaborative. And so I honestly think that this has been a good practice for me in terms of flexing those, like, how do you actually collaborate in research? How do you facilitate those collaborations? We talk about it, but how do you do it? Well, it starts with like an email being like, I'm this person. Who are you? I want to meet you. You know, it's not... And I think those are skills you improve on, right? And and But you got to practice. So... That's what I would say. If that like doesn't interest you or if it really, really scares the crap out of you, I don't think it's for you. Going back to a PhD program after some time, 
I don't have a ton of advice except just like really know yourself, know your financial position, talk to your family, talk to if you have a spouse, talk to your spouse. I mean, I think there's it's not just affecting you, it's affecting the people around you and really get their input on how you're going to make this work. Because everything gets a lot more pragmatic as you get older. <laughs> it has to. Although I would argue that I wish more people would be more pr- pragmatic about their school decisions earlier. That's another topic for another time, too. <laughs> no, that is that is so good. And and I think your advice for talking to your current coworkers or your current boss and saying, look, I'm considering this. This is what it would entail. Don't know if it's even going to happen. But I want to put it on your radar. I just thought that was a great piece of advice. And depending on the industry you're in, they might help you pay for it. Wouldn't that be you nice? Know? That would be so nice. Like, I'm not in that position, nor is my clinic in that position, nor do I expect that. But if I were in an academic institution already, I'd be like, how are you going to help me pay for this? Yep, and I would actually lead with that. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time today. One thing, if I can say... If I can promote for one second, sure. something else I did with my clinic, because again, this is all about like, how do you get healthcare information out to the community and to more people? And how do you make it usable? Um, my clinic and I worked on something called the first six weeks. And so you can go to www.thefirstsixweeks.com. And it is a postpartum course for the first six weeks after you deliver a baby. Because generally, after the first six weeks, or within those first six weeks, you don't see your medical providers. And so you're generally just kind of like left without medical care a lot of the times and with a newborn baby, which sounds just horrendous to me. And so I wanted to make something that takes women week by week through the healthcare advice that they need to know. When do you call your doctor? What's an emergency? You know, because there are emergencies that can occur in those first six weeks. So I really want everyone to know about that. And if you know pregnant people or whatever, please share that resource. It's it's honestly like a big pride of mine that we've gotten that together. That is excellent. We will put that in the show notes and I will definitely share it around to some pregnant people that I know. So thank you for the, the thank resource. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Best of luck and we will talk to you soon. All right, Dan, that was really cool. And, you know, certainly the type of PhD program and the type of graduate school experience that Carla is having, uh, there are some differences to those that I think many of our listeners who are doing a a full-time in-person PhD might be experiencing. But I also thought there were a lot of really great lessons that were baked in there that really wove in well with some episodes we've done kind of recently about making the decision whether or not sort of weighing the pros and cons of going back to graduate school at all. Um, and also just uh, what are the the challenges and opportunities with taking your career in a different direction um, than maybe you had originally planned. Um, but the first thing I have to say, Dan, is maybe my favorite part of the interview, and I loved, I loved the entire interview, was I loved the way that, that she framed the importance of research uh, and science and what connected her to it. And that was, and, and you connected to that too, Dan, when you were doing the interview, but uh, I had to stop and, and make a note of it uh, when she said it, uh, discussing that research is a path to make things better. And I think we feel that way, Dan, and we don't always maybe, th- it's not always at the top of our mind, but you know, I think I've said time and time again, a motivator for me to even do this podcast is I also believe that science and research hold the key, the keys to solving the really important problems that we face as human beings to make our lives better, more healthy, more happy. And we need people to do that. People with ideas and interests about the way the world works. And also people who are in different situations in life where they've observed problems that do exist and then engage in research to better understand those problems and to make them better. And it was so cool to hear Carla articulate that so well in her own experience she had as a, as a clinician, as a therapy provider, seeing the problems she saw and wanting to make an impact in that space. Um, and the way she chose to do that uh, was to 
engage in research. And I just thought that was so on brand and in the spirit of how we feel about research, but that that's important beyond just basic science, but really in all aspects of of life and society and careers, uh, research is very important. Yeah, I was so impressed with that. I, I forget sometimes that this is not just about the degree and is not just about the career. It really is about the impact. And as a clinician, she is helping people, but maybe she sees 100 patients in a month. And that's, a, that's amazing and helpful to those 100 people. And as she looked at her capacity to make a bigger impact, she said, well, if I can plant ideas in the brains of 100 or 1,000 other physical therapists then their 100 patients can get help. And so I just loved how she framed that. I think it's just so important for us to remember, to remind ourselves, especially when you're in the middle of your research, your experiments are failing, you've got your committee meeting coming up, and you're about to uh, panic. Just remember, these moments are, the thing you're working toward is actually making an improvement in somebody's life. And that can be easy to lose sight of. Totally. Um, you know, that Dan, the other thing that, that jumped out at me was when she was talking about her thought process about her own career. And, you know, I, I could really identify with this in my own career path of, you know, you maybe have this initial idea for what you want your career to be. And, and maybe you even take some steps to move towards that career, uh, maybe multiple years of steps. And then at some point during that process, I think this happens for, for a lot of us. We realize at some point, you know what, as I've kind of gotten along with this, this is not exactly what I want to do. You know, maybe I've learned about something that's a little bit off to the right or left that I want to do, something adjacent. Um, or maybe you just realize, you know what, this is actually not at all where my passion lies. However, knowing that does not make it easy to then make a change and step away from that that sunk cost that you've already invested in that career path. And so I really appreciated how, how Carla talked about that and how she talked about, even though she kind of knew that moving in a different direction was the right thing to do, there was still a little bit of mourning or difficulty in, in actually making exactly. that decision uh, because that was so true for me. And, and it was interesting for me to hear her articulate that too. But then also I hope our listeners who were, were listening as well, and maybe many of them are, evaluating their own career can see the benefits of taking that leap and listening to, you know, engaging that self-reflection, listening to that voice inside of you that's pointing you in a different direction that it truly is worth it to take that step. The pain is that it gets so wrapped up in our identities. I mean, everybody you meet, the first thing you often ask is, Oh, what do you do for a living? And, you know, from a young age, I don't, I think you were probably this way, Josh, I wanted to be a scientist when I was in seventh grade, right? Everything I did from seventh grade up through when I finished my PhD was I am going to be a scientist. My, my mom knew it. She told her friends, my friends knew it. Everybody knew it. And then to say, oh, actually, I was wrong for those 10 years when I was planning this thing. What I actually am is this other thing. And, and maybe this other thing is something I don't even know what it is yet. And that was certainly my experience. So it's the separating yourself from that identity you've created. And it is extremely painful, but so important and so liberating on the other side, right? When you find that thing that you love. I, I just appreciate one thing about her. Because she has been in the workforce, you know, she's not 18 years old. She's not 22 years old. I think she's now come to the place where, okay, this is, uh, this is, hard for her, right? She's making a change in her thesis project. She's said, you know, I had a, a cry about it. I called my sister. Um, but I think she's been through that enough time. She knows she can get through it. And so I think that's the benefit of having those years of experience. When you get to those troubles in grad school, which will come, you have enough years of success and of overcoming hurdles to say, okay, this is bad right now, but it is not the end. And I think when you go to grad school, when you're 20, you don't have that experience. And sometimes the setback can feel bigger than it actually has to be. Yeah, that's totally true, Dan. You know, the one, one thing I would add to that, that I think is, becomes a challenge, the farther along in your, your career and in your life that you get, is 
it can then sometimes be harder to make a change. You know, I can remember being, yeah, I think I was a lot more malleable (laughs) in some ways, you know, when you are 18 or 22, you can say, you know what, I'm going to just move my life all the way over here, or I'm going to, you know, I have no money and no bills and no obligations. Uh, I mean, we all, uh, different people have different obligations, but it would be a lot harder for me now. It would be a much more complex decision later in my life now that I have much different family and financial obligations. Plus just, I think as you get older, sometimes you uh, become a little more set in your ways. And so um, I think it's even more inspiring when I hear folks who make those decisions, even with the challenges of, of maybe being farther along in their, their career and their life. But also I think, which was a big topic of this interview, Dan, it's great that there are programs Uh, like this one, that offer a little more flexibility for folks, like where, you know, and Carla clearly loves her clinical work and loves the work she's doing with her patients, and she's an important part um, of their life, and they didn't want her to just leave and go to grad school full-time. Right, exactly. And and so I think it's great that there's an opportunity like this for, for Carla, whether it's in this type of program or other programs that give professionals who have that insight that they can really bring that richness of experience to a program and to research, but in a context that's flexible enough, they can actually do that. And it really made me wonder, Dan, I think this is a bigger topic than we can get into here, and I have not put that much thought into it, but it made me really think about how the way we do basic science PhD programs, like the one you or I went to, as far as I know, I mean, those are all full-time, in-person, for five plus year commitments, it would be very difficult for someone who's a non-traditional student to transition into that career. People do it. Some people certainly do it at great sacrifice, um, often great personal or professional sacrifice. But it just made me wonder. It just sparked this little idea like, hmm, I wonder why it has to be that way. Like, is there another way that that basic science training could provide at least an option of some additional flexibility uh, to be more inclusive of folks who might want to explore that at a different stage in their career besides right out of college or a few only a few years into a job i think we should we should have that show we should design that program josh uh using modern techniques how would you get a bench research phd from somewhere that's not necessarily uh, located in one spot all the time i think it's an interesting thought exercise um, one one last thing I wanted to highlight, because I think strategically, it's so important for people in graduate school to consider this. As you are choosing your project, hopefully you heard uh, Carla go through the ideas that she was having and how she was weighing those different options for a, a thesis project and thinking through what can I actually get done. So she has a passion, there's something she really wants to study. But if that passion involves trying to recruit patients and get IRB approval for doing uh, interventional studies, does she have time to complete that and, and to get to the degree? And so I think it was really useful to hear her think out loud about how she was deciding which projects are actually accessible uh, that actually get her to graduate. And then maybe later she can go on and do the thing she you know, dreamt of when she's not constrained by that tuition cost as it builds up over years. Did you have that in your your, uh, lab, Josh? Did you get to pick a project or were you assigned? You had mice and I ended up with mice, neither of which I would recommend for somebody trying to graduate. You know, I think I had the choice. I I think I had a choice of a project. My lab was, when I joined my my thesis lab, the lab was just starting in a new direction, like even a new, I studied bacteria, it was studying a new pathogen that there was funding for at the time. And so there were a lot of different things we could try and um, you know, it's, it's funny, I probably picked one because it looked like it was less likely to have animal work. And then I ended up, <laughs> it totally went in a direction where I did tons of animal work. Exactly. You know, I think because I didn't have the same level of experience that Carla had, I don't know that at the stage that I entered into my thesis lab as a first year graduate student, I had enough knowledge or imagination to really bring my own interest or passion. You know, I knew I was generally interested in this topic. I agree with, I agree with that. And so I kind of was looking to the PI to say, 
what's interesting here? <laughs> and then kind of among those choices, you know, uh, which I think is totally appropriate actually for, uh, you know, a first year grad student who's coming right out of undergrad or has had a little bit of experience. So I don't want, I also would not want students to think like, oh man, I don't have a clear vision of a project I came up with all on my own to present to a PI on day one, because I don't think uh, that that is necessarily the expectation either. Yeah, totally agree. And I also had no idea at that time. I guess the advice is just to think through how much time different options might take and the uncertainties inherent in each of those options. So if you are dealing with cells in a dish, that might be a little more predictable timeline-wise than uh, animals in a lab facility, you know, in an animal facility. So just throwing that out there as something to think through if you have the chance. Yeah, I did not think that through from that perspective. But I have I have met graduate students who did think that through, and that was an important component of the lab that they ultimately chose. And in many cases, Dan, those students, in fact, did finish sooner because that was a strategic goal that guided their decision-making throughout their PhD process. So I think that's that's an important thing to think about, too. I'm glad you brought it up. Well, again, Dan, thanks for for doing this interview, and especially thanks to Carla for listening and for writing in with a question. I always love that because uh, this show is about you, and so we love it when listeners are listening to the show and they're thinking, you know what, here's a topic that I think would be useful or that I'd like to talk about. And you may be the next guest if you write in. So so thanks to Carla for writing in and, and giving all that great info. And one more time, Josh, I'll keep saying it till it happens. We will be in Washington, D.C. for the Society for Neuroscience Conference. This is 2023 that we're recording this in case you're listening from the future. Uh, We hope to see you there. And if you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear that. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. If you'd like to support the show, the best thing you can do is to share it with a friend, a lab mate, or your department listserv. We reach new listeners entirely by word of mouth, and we need your help. If you'd like, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the Oktoberfest money because we are currently bereft and without. Uh, Thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. I look forward to seeing you, Dan, and maybe we can restock our beer or at least enjoy a couple together that we can talk about on future episodes. Sounds good. Well, it'll be champagne uh, for for the big celebration. This was episode 200, but... Hold on your hats. The the celebration is coming. The the spirit. It's gonna be a total letdown. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> will will happen at a future date. All right, Dad. All right, Josh. See you later. See you next time.